0: You are listening to the Cycling Podcast at the 2023 Tour de France. Today we're in Belleville en Beaujolais.
1: A victory for a French rider in the Basque country and now a Basque rider in France. In uh, San Sebastian, did you have the bottle of champagne from the Basque to celebrate? What will you have tonight? Champagne or Beaujolais?
2: I, I, I don't know. It's uh, something that they have, the Frenchies. They have to, they have to decide. But normally in the team we, we we use we use champagne. But uh, we'll see, we'll see what the the boss says. But uh, anyway, we're gonna celebrate it.
1: That was Bingan Fernandez, one of the sports directors of the Cofidis team, after stage twelve of the Tour de France, where, after fifteen years of hurt for Cofidis, they now have two stage wins in this Tour de France. After Victor Lafay in San Sebastian, the French rider in the Basque Country, I referred to, and today, Jon Izaguire, the Basque rider, in well wine country we are in Beaujolais my name's Lionel Burney I'm with Ian Boswell and as we're in one of the most famous wine regions in France we're naturally sipping on a nice cold beer aren't we Ian? but that's <laughs> perhaps because we were in the groupetto a bit today when we off the back after a late night seeing off our friend Mitch Docker a very pleasant evening with some friends of the podcast which we'll talk a little bit about later on but Ian where are we now we are in Belleville in Beaujolais is that the name of it? Um, I've been making fun of Mitch's French
3: for <laughs> the last couple of days. And now it's up to me to actually, <laughs> yeah, actually make sure I pronounce it right. Yeah, but Mitch, DNS this morning, didn't make it to our stage. And uh,
1: once you miss one stage, it, you're out of the race. It was always planned. It was always planned. He was going to do the first 11 stages of the tour. And then he's off to do some other things. Uh, we'll miss him, of course. But we're going to recap stage 12. And it's that time of day.
0: It's time for the tale of the attack.
1: As we predicted in last night's episode, Ian, a very aggressive stage. The profile lent itself to attacking. Absolutely no respite at all, all day. They set out from Roanne. They finished here in Belleville-en-Beaujolais, 168 kilometres. So it was going to be fast. It was going to be hard. There were a couple of second category climbs towards the end of the stage and three third category climbs before that. And once again, with all of the aggression at the start, the GC favourites were making all of the splits at the front. Jonas Vingegaard, Tadej Pogacar, Simon Yates. Uh, real, real tough racing from the start. And it took a while for a break to go clear. And a big break did go clear. I suppose the story of the day is just that last 50 kilometres. Absolutely hell for leather racing. Kicked off, really, by Matthew van der Poel and André Amador. Van der Poel, of course, of alpecin in de Kernick who already have four stage wins, thanks to Jasper Philipsen. And André Amador, who was in a sort of soft, tippy-tappy break yesterday that was never going to go anywhere. I wonder what he was doing in that, if he had designs on a stage like today, but perhaps we'll discuss that. And, well, it looked like little and large, riding over the hills and round the corners. Uh, Van der Poel left Amador standing still, almost, on the second category climb of the Col de la Croix Montmain. And at this point in the race... With uh, Thibaut Pinot in that breakaway, AG2R were riding very hard on the front of the yellow jersey group. We'll have to get to the bottom of what they were doing. On the descent of the Croix Montmain, Matteo Jorgensen of Movistar and Thibaut Pinot of Group Armour FTJ went clear in pursuit of Van der Poel. And on the final climb, the Col de la Croix Rosier, they caught up. So that gave three riders at the front. Julian Alaphilippe had been dropped from the break went back to the yellow jersey group and kind of looked across at the AG2R riders on the front, didn't he? And gave them a bit of a look and said a couple of things. I wonder if he was asking, what on earth are you doing, guys?
3: I mean I think he was. We were uh we were all a little bit puzzled. I mean there was a couple of times throughout the day when we were puzzled about what a number of riders were doing, which eventually kind of made sense what was happening, but still to, you know, where we're sitting now, I have no idea what E.G. Tuara was doing on the front of the peloton.
1: I think we may have to wait till episode 6 of next year's Netflix series to find out maybe, I don't know. Anyway towards the top of that final climb Jon Izaguirre, the Cofidis rider one of two Cofidis riders in that break went away. At that point Matthew van der Poel, who had already been caught uh, was dropped and so Izaguirre won over the top solo and won his first Tour de France stage since winning at Morzine for Movistar in 2016. So his second tour stage win in all. And after a five year drought for the Spanish, two Tour de France stage wins in a matter of days. Second place, Matthew Bergadot of Total Energies. Third heartbreak again for Matteo Jorgensen. We'll hear from him a little bit later on. Fourth, Tish Benut, who was kind of in there as a bit of a policeman for Jumbo visma Fifth, Tobias haaland Johansson of Uno X. And then Thibaut Pino in sixth. And that moves him five places up the GC into the top 10. Guillaume Martin of Cofidis also moves up five to 13th place. The other big news today is that Fabio Jakobsen of Sudal Quick Step did not start, still struggling terribly since those uh, since that crash on the motor racing circuit. So, does that simplify Sudal Quickstep's uh, remainder of the tour, or does it make it even harder for them to win a stage? Who knows? And David de la Cruz of Astana, who was up the road on his own very early on, then crashed out and has withdrawn from the race it's all the peas in the other jersey jasper philipson nielsen Paulus and today pogacar in green polka dots and white respectively tomorrow it's the third summit finish of the tour at le grand colombier but let's hear a little bit more from bingham fernandez of Cofidis about the importance of getting two riders into that break and then how they finished it off everyone knows this team has waited so long for a tour stage win and now you have two what has changed
2: I don't know. Still, uh, I think it's, it's the, this is the work, work we are doing in the last years. No, we came to the team in the last uh, three years. We are Cedric is improving. Cedric Basel is the manager who is improving things, and I think it's the result of lo- all those things. No, I think uh, everything goes in a, in a good direction, and when you win, it always goes in a, in a nice, uh, good direction. So we have to, what to think is, it's, it's uh, been a, a team work, team work for everyone, and. the the path we took but it looks like it's a good good one
1: how important is it on a day like today to have more than one rider in a great like that
2: it was good because uh, we had we had uh, we had Guillaume that could uh, just uh, let's say we have Guillaume attacking and Guillaume behind so we were thinking that good could be organised and if they kept kept, uh, uh, attacking if someone could go, they could just reduce that gap. No, we said to Guillaume, keep, keep the all together, keep all those guys, don't let them go. And then that was the teamwork that he did that helped the victory, which is John's victory, but it's Guillaume's victory and it's the team victory.
1: What did you think when Van Der Poel went up the road? Did you think maybe he could do it? He's he's the type of rider who could ride from 40 or 50k from the finish I
2: think he, he had to anticipate because uh, looking at that he he had the riders like Pinot and those guys they were better climbers. Uh, he can't anticipate. I think he did a good move. He was thinking that he could just pass that that little leader, that little no, little. It was just a hard hard climb, but the last the last climb, and it was a good move. But uh, then uh, the the riders the riders came from the back. They were strong. He couldn't pass. That for us was was good because he, he was in the front. Uh, arrived with him from the top to the finish. For sure, he was the, he was the winner.
0: The cycling podcast at the 2023 Tour de France is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport fuelled by science.
1: This is Science in Sport Chief Executive Stephen Moon talking about why Science in Sport was keen to get involved with supporting the Tour de Lunsart in Sierra Leone in the first place.
4: We're, We're one community and it doesn't matter if we're tying off inner tubes or with Tom Pidcock scorching down Alpe d'Huez, we're all part of the same community. So no financial return, but yeah, I think there's a real authenticity for all of us. And you guys do it very well with the podcast. It's a massive community. You know, you branch off into other areas like long distance cycling, but we're all part of that community. So there's no hard nose answer, but there's a moral answer, Um it's not some kind of worthy thing, it's it, it, it's a recognition of cycling as a global sport and we're a global sisterhood and brotherhood.
1: Check out the full range of Science in Sport products at scienceinsport.com. Impressive by Jon Izaguirre, no doubt, and Cofidis looked like a team reborn since Victor Lafay's victory at the start of the Tour. I, I mean, it's easy to say now because they've won, but they didn't look like the kind of slightly hapless Cofidis we often see you know it's not unusual for them to get one, two sometimes even three riders in breaks like that but they rarely seem to make those numbers count today they pretty much got it all right didn't they?
3: Yeah I mean they've definitely had a, a rebirth here you know the 15 year drought has, has come it's well and done over and uh, you know we were sitting after the after the stage at their team bus and it was ironic to see Kofidis parked next to Team Ineos and there was almost no fans no media at Team Ineos which is you know For the last decade has been the team no one and you look over at kofidis and there was cameras and fans and people cheering and uh you know hats off to them for you know kind of turning things around this tour you know they're on a they're on a roll now i wouldn't be surprised if we see them take another stage win but really impressive And, and really just kind of apparent of how much a stage victory means here you know today i was walking past the astana bus no one's outside the bus but you know, a stage win for the, from here until Paris. Kofodis is going to continually be a team that people are drawn to.
1: Absolutely. I mean, number one French team in the Tour, really, at the moment. When Matthew van der Poel went away, though, he was doing the sort of thing that only a select few riders could really attempt to pull off. I mean, what do you think tactically he was thinking? Because they were two really hard second category climbs. He's a decent climber, a classics, a genius, really, in the same bracket as Wout van Aert. But those climbs, quite hard. What was he actually trying to do there, do you think?
3: When I first saw it, I was a bit puzzled and thinking, you know, these riders, Van Art, Van they don't want to just win. They want to win with style. But then I started to look at the profile a bit more and realized that there were some really good climbers in that group. You know, having the likes of, of Pino and Izaguiri and, you know, even Guillem-Martin, he had to get a gap before that final climb. And even though today wouldn't be considered a mountain day, you know, the last climb was five plus K at seven plus percent. So that's a hard climb. And, you know, those are the climbs that really catch people out. And, you know, the pure climbers can really open it up and and let it go on those climbs. So I think he knew that he had to have a gap in order to make it over that final climb and and also get rid of some of the the other fastmen. You know, Dylan Toons, more often than not, you would think Vanderpoel would beat him in a sprint, but you never know after a hard day of racing. So... You know, distance some of the other fast men, and hopefully try to get a gap and make it to the top of that final climb. As you know, the, the likes of Pino and, and Guillaume Martin would hopefully catch him before he got there.
1: Yeah, it didn't quite come off for him, did it? Because yeah, clearly trying to whittle down the numbers, get rid of the few threats that might have been in a sprint finish. But in the end, he got done by the better climbers on uh, that final climb. Mitch was talking to us at breakfast before he went off to do his incredibly hard bike ride to Sestriere, which I think is tomorrow, Uh, but he was saying, and I think he said it a couple of days ago as well, about just how much the profile, the short stage, the amount of climbing the fact that everybody knows that this is uh, an opportunity for a huge number of riders today. Probably, I don't know how many riders, I'm p- picking a number out of the air, but probably 60, 70 riders might have looked at today and thought, this is my day to get in the break, and if everything goes well, I could maybe be in with a shout. What's that feeling like? I mean, you you rode the Tour for Katusha, you've ridden stages like this in the Dauphiné for Team Sky. Do the Butterflies get going on days like today, even more so perhaps than on the classic mountain stages where at least everybody knows the race is going to be a little bit calmer, a little bit more formulaic, I suppose. Today was just complete carnage from the start.
3: Absolutely. I think these are some of the hardest days of the race. You know, we're also in the the smack dad center of, you know, of France, but also of the Tour de France. And, you know, this is the point when Paris still seems like a long way away and, you know, riders are, fatigue is setting in. You know, we've come off a rest day. We've had some hard days of racing since. But there are so many riders that have the possibility of winning a day like today. You know, we saw the likes of Vanderpool, but we also had the GC riders going for it from the gun. When you all of a sudden have 70 riders with the possibility of winning the stage, it really does make the race more challenging because everyone's trying to utilize their strength, whether it's, you know, a short climb early on, a descent, and the the stage is on from the beginning. There's no groupetto that establishes from the start and everyone realizes that, hey, you know, this first climb, 20K and there's going to be a groupetto. We can ride steady to the finish. You know, everyone's trying to make it because who knows when the break is actually going to go.
1: Well, one man who really fancied his chances today, he said to you yesterday, I think, or maybe the day before, that this was the stage that he had in mind after that heroic, but in the end, unsuccessful ride on Le Puy de Dom on Sunday. And it's Matteo Jorgensen of Movistar, American rider, of course. Well, he rode extremely well, but didn't quite have it at the finish finished third and he spoke to reporters at the team bus at the end of the stage and well you can hear from what he says and how he says it how he was feeling
5: I don't know why he wasn't riding through and then yeah Guillaume Martin was just sitting on which is expected but uh then Pino was kind of just riding for GC yeah it was frustrating I mean really frustrating
1: I know you're disappointed, but you said to us this morning there was maybe one more chance for you. It must be satisfying nonetheless to know that there is that pressure on you and to have delivered. Uh, no, it's not satisfying at
5: all. Uh, no, no. I mean, today was the best stage of the tour for me. And I, I don't know. The, the stages to come are all for the small guys. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll try to give it a crack. But just uh, pretty pretty gutted. Today I was never in the race for the win. I mean... Yeah, I was just a marked man, pre de Dome. at least I was out there and was way closer to the win than I was today. Uh, third versus four doesn't matter at all. I mean, even the sprint for second was just kind of whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. The, the win is what counts and just I'm going to have to think about this day a bit more.
1: Sounded like he was being pretty hard on himself there. Given the opportunity to say that he was pleased with himself or pleased with how the day had gone, he pretty much dismissed that Uh, suggestion and I suppose that demonstrates just how much he's kind of risen in stature in his own mind as much as anything since Sunday
3: yeah I mean as we said earlier we were a little bit late to the finish Uh, couldn't get across the road so you know I had this question in my mind getting ready to speak to Mateo like hey like you're one step closer you know he'd finished he's finished now three times fourth in the Tour de France on a stage today he was third you know what and he he rode really well today you know so he's becoming kind of one of these perennial breakaway riders who is hunting stage wins at the Tour de France and I assumed he was going to be happy with with his result and you could hear from his voice that you know he was almost disgusted and frustrated and and for me as a friend of mateo it was really hard to see that because you know this is the biggest race in the world and he has had a great tour de france but whether that pressure is coming from himself from the team you know he really feels it and as he said you know he kind of feels like this was maybe his last chance in this year's tour to to get that stage win and he put himself in the right place he was there he was close but
1: once again just a little bit off the mark Well, if the rumours are true about where he might be going next in his career, the chances to win a Tour de France stage might be running out in a funny kind of way because he might be buzzing around for another team at next year's Tour de France. As you say, you know, he had pinpointed this stage as one that would suit him. And he said at the end there, it's over to the skinnier guys, the lighter guys for the mountain stages. But you just never know if he, well, yeah, the climbs over the, the, the final phase of the race are a completely different proposition to what we saw today but hats off to him rode extremely aggressively third place I, I think says something about a rider when you can ride like that just a few days after the, the Puy de Dom ride and be disappointed with his performance uh, what about Thibaut Pinot then because this is his final Tour de France he's kind of the the darling of French cycling and, uh, well, he's a slightly eccentric rider, isn't he? You know, he he sort of wanders back into the GC battle when he's already kind of out of it. But when he's in the GC battle, he seems to wilt under the pressure. And without being flippant about AG2R, I do wonder whether they were chasing hard because Pino was in that break, perhaps, you know, in that battle for outside top 10 placings Felix Gall is still in that remember Ben O'Connor was already off the back so actually putting their own teammate further out of the GC AG2R it did look like a bit of a French battle that but Pino right back in the GC tonight
3: yeah and I'm, I'm a little bit confused by well again AG2R but, but even with Pino you know I guess coming into this tour I thought what, what does success look like him at, for him at this Tour de France you know a stage win would be huge and then I thought okay well if he can't do that maybe he'll go for the KOM jersey but today he wasn't chasing points you know you know he was at the top of the final climb with with Jorgensen and Jorgensen took the points. You know he's, he's second. There's still plenty of points for him to take the KOM jersey if he were to hunt that, but it didn't look like that today. But he's also put himself back in a position where he's. I mean he's far back on GC, but he's up there close enough. He's not going to get in a 15 minute breakaway and have an opportunity to win a stage because he's he's too close at this you know, at this point in time because he gained time back today. And this has kind of been a reoccurring theme over the last couple of years for Pino, where he's not he's not riding GC but he's also not losing enough time to go for these stage wins.
1: Just back to Movistar, one point I wanted to ask you about, Ian, was the way that Matteo Jorgensen and Ruben Guerrero worked together or kind of didn't work together. It didn't look like a sort of tandem effort so much as maybe Kofidis did with Martin and Izaguire. They didn't look like they were really kind of thinking about how one could do something and then the other could profit off the back of that. I would completely
3: agree. And, you know, I was teammates with Guerrero on on Katusha, and, you know, I know Mateo well. And they're both still very young and hungry riders. And so I wonder if that came into play a little bit where they both wanted to win the stage. And there's one point on the penultimate climb where Guerrero went off the front. And I was like, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe he's going to go up the front. He's actually feeling good. He's going to bridge across to Vanderpool. And, you know, Mateo has a free ride. But as it turns out, you know, Mateo had better legs in the end. And Guerrero didn't really do a lot to set him up for a stage win having not listened to all of Mateo's interview at the finish, I do think part of that frustration was with his teammate and how his team rode. To know that he clearly showed that he had the legs to be there, but that maybe he didn't have the, the belief of his team, uh, not saying his team, but maybe some of his teammates behind him to you know to win
1: that stage. Just before we move on from the stage, the suffering is over for Fabio Jakobsen for this Tour de France. Caleb Ewan, though, is struggling on. Finished last with only his teammate Jasper deboost for company, the Lotto Destiny sprinter. Well, we did wonder whether, you know, he was sandbagging a bit the other day with, us, uh, with yesterday's sprint stage to come. But clearly, all is not well for Ewan and uh, a difficult few days for all of the sprinters coming up. The Cycling Podcast is very proud to be partnered with MAP, the clothing company from Melbourne, and we've been hearing from Harry Osborne, the head of design, about the design process and how they intend to stretch the boundaries with the design work, not just in terms of the aesthetics, but also the technical function of the clothing.
5: Performance at Maps, is obviously hugely important, but we try to look at our you know, design process you know, really holistically. As a team, I suppose our vision is to... You know, create products that really challenge some of the old codes of cycling and that's done through really can you know this continuous pursuit of technical advancement you know whether that be through fabrics and manufacturing techniques also looking at the other side of things you know how we can bring sort of progressive styling distinct level of creativity to the market in a map way it's really looking at both sides of the coin it's a performance driven aspect but also what level of style and creativity outside the function are we bringing to the market
1: go to map.cc and you can get your hands on the cycling podcast jersey and other accessories we'll hear more from harry a bit later on in the tour now it's time to hear from a man who has well the best seat in the house but today doesn't sound like it was a terribly comfortable ride
0: Seb
4: the voice of Radio Tour, sitting at the back of the back. Bonjour, bonjour, another day in the life of Radio Tour. Another crazy day on the Tour de France now. Was today different to the others? Well, not really, it's just far more intense. My day starts three hours before the start of the stage, when I show up to uh, the start. Only today I had to do far more interviews because it was really hard to... uh, pinpoint who the guys would be in the breakaway. Once that was done, my main concern was to find toilets. (laughs) And I did find a toilet, only the person inside the toilet stayed there for at least 15 minutes, thank you very much. So I was never able to uh, have a pee, sorry. Meaning that uh, I entered the red car, we started the stage and we knew that it would be flat out from kilometer zero for basically two hours, so uh, it was an uncomfortable two hours of uh, racing, Uh, eventually uh, a group uh, pulled away and we were able to stop for obvious and natural reasons. Other than that, yeah, well, it's really just far more intense. Uh, You have to be more focused because so many things can happen. You have to Uh, Give uh, gaps between the leading rider and the chasing group between the leading rider and the yellow jersey group between the leading rider and the Group of drop riders so it was a pretty crazy day and I know It's not over. Oh, and one final thing. I wasn't able to uh, have my lunch my sandwich Before half past three. There was a grumpy Seb in race direction car number two today
1: we've been our What does Seb Piquet do? Obviously viewers who watch the coverage on TV may well hear him asking the questions at the finish of the stage but for the rest of the day he is in the red car the race direction car at the front he is trying to keep the entire Tour de France entourage informed about the time gaps and who's in the moves as a rider did you ever come across Seb Piquet at all in the ASI races.
3: I did once uh, at the tour actually on Bastille Day, which is which is tomorrow. It was an odd Bastille Day. I think it was a relatively flat day, and no one wanted to go in the breakaway. And at the time, I was trying to renew my my car séjour, my visa for living in France. And I, th- I think I went to PK because you know I, I his voice is recognizable. You know he he spoke English, and I I had pitched the idea to him if I were to go in the breakaway. As, you know maybe the honorary Frenchman for the day. Would they exchange uh, my efforts with a French passport? Didn't happen. Still don't have a French passport. But yeah, I mean, his voice is very recognizable. You know, you hear him in all the big ASL races, and we actually got a... Chat with him a bit in the uh, press room the other day, and yeah,
1: cool as a cucumber. He's an extremely influential man, said PK but I'm not sure he can sort you out with a passport or citizenship. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I feel his pain there. Nothing worse than missing a lunch on the Tour de France. And I took the opportunity at lunchtime before we left the start to have a charolais beef burger. And, uh, well, it was just what I needed after last night's Charolais beef, but more (laughs) of that a bit later on. Last night in the podcast, Ian, we were talking a little bit about this contrast of characters between Jonas Vingegaard and Tadej Pagacar, and how the whole sort of storytelling of the Tour de France hinges on the character of the main protagonist, and there was that kind of downbeat feeling after Vingegaard's press conference because the media are assembled there to try and get under the skin of the Mayo Jaune and really peel away the layers and well we kind of get the sense that there's not an awful lot of complexity there whether that's an unfair impression it is nevertheless the impression that we have especially when contrasted with Pogacar who is flamboyant he races with Panache but he's also you know he responds to the media with a glint in his eye and and his personality really comes across on his own social media you spoke to Luke Maguire who's the press chief for team UAE Emirates and uh, well let's hear what Luke says about how they manage the image of today Pogacar as much as anything last night on our
3: podcast we were talking about the importance and I guess potentially the training that teams give to athletes especially a rider like Pogachar Vingagal who are projected into this role of kind of sharing who they are over a very short course of time during an interview at UAE do you guys give any sort of media training to someone like Pogachar who finds himself regularly being asked questions
6: well I think in the case of today we're very lucky that he's been blessed with not only great talent on the bike but also a very outgoing easygoing personality that that people can relate to and cyclists can relate to apart from being a racer he loves the sport he loves to have fun to joke around and yeah i guess people people enjoy that as far as training goes i mean we give a generic meeting at the start of the year it is something we we do pay attention to but a lot of it comes from the athletes from their personality and if they have the personality well we like to we do like to show it
3: with tata he's such a unique individual because his personality really does come through you know the other day he was riding with a baguette you know and and he posted on instagram and it of course people could see that as always oh, messing around but he's you know trying to win the tour de france is that something that the team embraces and wants to share or is that tade kind of by himself going out on a whim and you know just joking around
6: maybe a bit of both but i'd say it, definitely it starts from tade and we we latch on to it for him it's a good way of keeping the stress off himself as well him having fun on the bike results in you know a lot less mental stress because in the end after a stage he does have to spend a lot of time, you know, with the press conference, mix zone, podium. He's had the podium every day since day one, since he's had the white jersey. So if you add up all the hours, it's a lot of time. And I guess for an athlete, you can either choose to enjoy those hours or or not, or make them more difficult for yourself. And uh, he chooses the the former.
1: Ian, you've got your podcast, of course, Breakfast with Boz. You're always very approachable at the st- start and finish of races was media something that you enjoyed or did you see it as a kind of an opportunity to kind of build your profile get your face out there when maybe i don't want to be unkind but you weren't a prolific winner you were a um you were a, a, a sort of domestique for stages like today almost
3: yeah i mean i mean <laughs> I never minded doing any sort of media. You know, I felt like it was an opportunity to, you know, share my experience as well. And I guess, you know, looking back on it now, I can go back and listen to, you know, 2018. I did a daily diary with the cycling podcast. And it's almost like my journal from, from the 2018 tour, you know, and having this conversation last night really got me thinking about how much influence journalists have, you know, and, and you really have this snippet into a rider, who they are in this very short amount of time at this press conference. And, you know, it's at the end of the day, They're t- for them, it, it doesn't really mean anything. You know, they're thinking about, you know, what happened on the stage, getting home, getting recovered, what's up coming up tomorrow. But this is a very small opportunity that they have to shape the narrative and the character of who they are. Myself as a writer, I never, you know, was in a situation like that where I was given an interview and my my words were going to be a reflection of who I am globally. In the press booth, you know, there are journalists from around the world. And so when, when Vingagol is speaking to, you know, 15 or 20 journalists there in front of him that is what's being relayed around the globe you know that press conference isn't open to the public it's open to the journalists, and they're asking questions he's responding and when he does give these you know short boring bland answers it leaves so much room for journalists to kind of just either make stuff up or Kind of share his lack of interest.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure. Make stuff up. I mean, I wouldn't say. uh, I think that's a sort of a bit of a a, a sort of stereotypical way of looking at the job of the media. But they certainly would amplify the very little nuggets or kernels of of of, uh, information that they get. Hence, Primoz Roglic, who is similarly sort of, although he's got a bit more of a a kind of a dry sense of humour, but he's a similarly sort of taciturn character. It's why the one thing we know about him is that he was a former ski jumper and I suppose the same could be said about Vingegaard and the uh, previous job working in the fish factory. I would also caveat all of this by saying that Vingegaard and most of the riders are communicating with the media in a second language, generally English, and often the journalists are asking questions in a second language as well, usually English. And so it, it does kind of insert quite a few barriers into what could be the process of building relationships, making him feel more comfortable in what is a very alien situation. He's in a little cabin at the finish line. He's watching a screen. He can see the faces in the press room. We're watching him on a, uh, a screen as well. It's an artificial relationship that that develops but yeah I do think that uh, it would probably do him a few more favours if he just relaxed the shoulders a little bit and, and let us know who he was on the other hand and I'm looking you know I'm twisting myself round and round here trying to see all sides <laughs> of the story at the end of the day his job is to work for Yumbo Visma and Yumbo Visma want him to win the Tour de France I mean I overheard Marijn Zeman earlier this week talking to a Scandinavian journalist who was sort of asking you know why doesn't Jonas Vingegaard do more press you know why isn't he a bit more open and I think at the end of the day you just have to allow and accept that people's characters are people's characters and, and that is it but I do think that there's it does there's quite an energy in the press pack that they would quite like Pogacar to take the yellow jersey and kind of bring things to life a little bit
3: yeah, and and you kind of hit the nail on the head there. It is wild to think that a rider can be thrusted into this position where every day he's being asked questions. And, you know, and the fact that you know, as as Luke said, you know, Pogacar has been in the press conference every single. He's had a jersey every single day since stage one. I mean, how many more questions can you ask? Pogacar handles that really well, and I think he's also been a rider in somewhat of the spotlight since you know since he was young. And, and Vingegaol, by no means, came from nowhere, but he in the last three years he has been thrusted from a rider trying to be the best he can to now being asked questions every single day at the tour about a variety of topics. And and it's not his personality. And you know, I've realized during this tour, you know, we've been speaking about riders that you know I was teammates with or whatnot, and you have a very different perspective of them than i do you know because i know these writers behind the curtain being at their weddings or birthday parties or hanging out having a beer with them and i'm like oh that he oh that's he's such a cool guy but your perspective is what you
1: get from them
3: outside the bus and and that can be very different
1: indeed it can yeah there's some some barking in the background there one of the team press officers i think trying to you know (laughs) stop this conversation going any further we're missing Mitch, of course, already. Uh, we got to the finish here a lot slower than we might have done if he'd been driving. I mean, he drives right on the speed limit. I should just clarify that. It's not, you know, he's not reckless. He's very, very safe. Well, he's a very upbeat character, isn't he? He's got an opinion about everything, and he's uh, incredibly curious about the Tour de France. And uh, he's almost become a sort of an Aussie Francois Thomaso. Speaking of whom...
0: Now, for some French flavor with B, François Thomason. And the flavor of the day, obviously, is that of red wine, because you spent the day, uh, Lionel and Ian, in the uh, Beaujolais uh, region. Actually, would you be able to name the 10 vintages of uh, Beaujolais? Uh, You have uh, 20 seconds. Okay, leave 20 seconds here. No, so the the, the 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 ten vintages of Beaujolais for you, dear listeners, who might f- have forgotten one, are Saint-Amour, Julienas, Chenas, moulin Moulin-à-Vent, Fleury, Chirouble, Morgon, Régnier, Brouilly, and Cote de Brouilly. You also have of course the, the normal Beaujolais wine or Beaujolais village and of course the famous Beaujolais nouveau well not so famous but that's you know that's uh, uh, sold as a commercial operation every year actually you went through six of the ten vintages of Beaujolais today in the stage I must say I've been through most of those uh, little towns not to drink wine but because Paris Nice stops th- in the, the Beaujolais towns uh, very often the Tour de France they didn't uh, stop that many often in the Beaujolais uh, it goes through it but there was a couple of stages One in the Regnier Durette in 2002 it was a time trial I couldn't name the winner of this time trial in the um, official tourist guide so I suppose it's probably an American guy and then there was a, a, an, another Time trial starting the Beaujolais in, 12, in 2012, starting for Villiers-Morgon, and finishing in uh, bourg bresse and it was won by the guy who was going to win the Tour de France, the first Briton to do so, Bradley uh, Wiggins. As we talk of Bradley Wiggins, you started from Rouen, and Rouen, uh, in 2019, you had a time trial in the Criterium du Dauphiné, it was good memory for Wood Van Hart, uh, who won that time trial that day. But, dreadful memories of course for Christopher Froome who uh, crashed before the time trial took place. And uh, as everybody knows, yeah, the crash nearly ruined his career and ruined all his chances to climb a fifth Tour de France victory. That was for Rohan. Rouen known for the to the French public since we were in the French flavor for the, the Trois Gros Brothers, who were, were the owners of a famous restaurant there in Rohan and uh, known all over France. If you ask me, my favorite of the ten Beaujolais vintages, I would go for for Morgon, uh, and especially a Morgon made by uh, Marcel Lapierre, is a very famous uh, wine grower in the Beaujolais region, and his Morgon is a classic and it's very good. Uh, if you look for good Beaujolais, go for Foyard as well. It's a good, you know, good bet. Uh, you, you can be sure they do good wines. Another place that makes very good Beaujolais wines, and especially Morgon ones, are is the Chateau de Pise. Guys, I don't know where you're planning to have uh, dinner tonight, but if you have enough money, because it's not cheap, uh, try Chateau de Pizet. It's a very, very nice place, and the food is excellent, and also, as I said, the Beaujolais wines they make are pretty good. Chateau de Pizet. Okay, guys, let's talk soon. Bye-bye.
1: A little wine test there. We didn't have time to insert our answers in there, unfortunately, but I'm pretty confident we would have got 10 out of 10. I certainly <laughs> knew Chenesse and Beaujolais Nouveau. <laughs> I, was, I was a zero out of 10. I feel
3: like I was. Uh, my knowledge of wine is much more in line with, with Richard Moore. Red, white, nice, very nice.
1: And, and rosé, of course, and rosé, of course, yes. Um, well, let's look back, what, 12 hours or so to...
0: L'étape de demain, le dîner d'hier. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's dinner.
1: Last night, Ian, we recorded our podcast in Moulin after the finish, and then we drove across country, Mitch drove across country, to get us to Charol, where we stayed with friends of the podcast, Chris and Tamsin. Now, couple of years ago now 2021 Chris and Tamsin invited the cycling podcast to stay with them they used to run uh, guest house uh, they no longer run the guest house but on that occasion Richard Moore Francois Tomizot and Kate Wagner had a very pleasant evening with Chris and Tamsin and I had the real kind of sense of missing out and I was really grateful to Chris for getting in touch when the tour route was announced to extend that invitation again and we were delighted to take him up on it we went to their beautiful home in Charol which in itself is a lovely town and we met fellow friends of the podcast David and Sam and had a very pleasant evening indeed Uh, the the wine was fantastic the Charolais beef was exceptional wasn't it being cooked over an open flame it had a real lovely smoky flavour just a lovely evening a break from the kind of formality of a restaurant meal and a, and a hotel bedroom
3: yeah it was and one of the things we'd had kind of for the first time on the tour was vegetables and not were they only vegetables and we had some potatoes uh some french fries i guess you guys you call them what crisps? wedges i think wedges. wedges yeah they were big but, yeah. but they were from their garden that is one thing you notice traveling and eating in restaurants in france is you really lack the vegetables So we had those. They were from their garden. And then this morning, we got to do a little walk around the town. And we actually went to their garden plot and got to walk through their garden and see where
1: most of our dinner last night was grown. We did. And we also poked our noses in at the Bernard Thevenay Museum. Thevenay is from the area. In fact, I think Thevenay's sister lives next door to Chris and Tamsin. I think I've remembered that I believe that's what he said, yes. Well, Thévenet, of course, won the Tour de France in 1975 and 1977, if memory serves me correctly, for the Peugeot team. He was the man who ended Eddie Merckx's kind of dominance of the Tour de France in 75. The museum itself was a curious place. Uh, Chris described it as very French. It was very French. had lots of kind of derelict old bicycles without tires or you know saddles or pedals outside there was a huge uh, ice cream shop freezer as well empty, empty. unfortunately empty. <laughs> but plugged in it was plugged in it so <laughs> <laughs> and lots of pictures of not just thevenay but also uh, other french star riders and i gather that the local club meet there they go back there get their bikes fixed there or we'll, you know have a, a meet and there's a, a Bernard Cyclo Sportive, which is held in May as well. So, uh, yeah, and apparently he turns up every now and again, once a year or so, uh, to say hello to all the cyclists. should also just say, to continue the cycling link, Chris and Tamsin aren't just Cycling Podcast fans, but uh, Tamsin's son is James Hayden, the endurance rider who won the Transcontinental a couple of times and has featured on the Cycling Podcast Explore, and I promised I would give a shout-out to James Hello James, if you're listening, it'd be great to have you back on the podcast towards the end of the year, talking about your latest exploits. Now, that was yesterday's dinner. We were, It was a very late night, wasn't it? I think 1am, so we were outside the time cut really last night. And then I woke up extremely early, about 5. So I've operated today on four hours sleep. I've not felt the best for it. Um, so I'm hoping that tonight we can have a nice early dinner keep the Beaujolais nice and light and an early night because it's a big stage of the Tour de France tomorrow, isn't it?
3: It is. Yes, we are. We are in the Alps, my my favorite region of France, my favorite stages of of the Tour de France. And tomorrow is it is also Bastille Day tomorrow. So to be noted, watch out for French riders heading up the road. Tomorrow is 137.88K. And here I go. Now Mitch has his opportunity to, to diss my <laughs> French. We start in Châtillon sur Chalajon, and we finish at the Grand Colombier, which is a climb of 17.4 kilometers at 7.1%. That is the only mm. categorized climb of the day. There is a sprint in the middle of the stage at 87.3 k. It is an uphill
1: sprint. Which they um, put on the top of a great big hill. Look at that. <laughs> they did. I mean, that yeah. is a real Giro d'Italia style mm. hoodwinking in the roadbook, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it's, it's relatively
3: a, a flat, flat run-in until the final climb. I mean, there is this, this bump for the sprint. Um, but 17.4K climb, 7.1%. I mean, I haven't been here the whole tour, but I, I think the longest climb of this year's Tour de France thus far.
1: And a small correction, corner, because I believe it's in the Jura tomorrow. Not quite in the Alps. We're in the Jura, the Grand Colombier. But there we are. Oh, there I we mean, go. Yeah. There <laughs> we are. I, I'm always caught out by that. I mean, they, these mountain ranges kind of merge into one another. But it's are we a, not in Haute Savoie? Uh, Francois has explained this before. Listeners, go back and listen to the episode where Francois explains this. But I believe the Grand Colombier is in the Jura, um, and if that's not correct then feel free to correct my correction what do we expect tomorrow anticipating Vingegaard against Pogacar of course but it's a big opportunity for the rest of the top 10 to either cement those positions or in the case of um, Carlos Rodriguez, Peo Bilbao, Simon Yates even Tom Pidcock to put a bit of pressure on Jai Hindley in the race for that third place on the podium.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is the first of a really big weekend to come. You know, three days in the Alps, rest day, time trial, and then another day in the Alps up to uh, Courchevel. There's going to be a battle on this final climb. I would expect tomorrow that something's going to go and we're going to see two races we're going to see a race for the stage win and we're going to see the gc riders duking it out this is also a territory where jonas Vingegaard is expecting to have an advantage on Pogachar these longer climbs i haven't checked the weather forecast yet but it's going to be a battle and the, these next three days and we saw them you know they're they're racing full gas today for you know on a relatively you know kind of transitional day but if Vingegaard wants to get time on Pogachar, he has to start tomorrow
1: Indeed, he does. I mean, you say it could be a race for the break to win the stage. Roughly, what sort of time gap do you think they would need at the bottom of the Grand Colombier to have a chance of staying away? I guess it depends on how aggressive the stage is raced beforehand, but roughly speaking, do they need, what, eight minutes? It also, it also depends really on who's in the
3: break. You know, are they a good climber? But given the fact that, you know, essentially the first hundred or first 74 kilometers are, are pretty flat, um, you'd be looking for a climber who has maybe a teammate or two in the breakaway. You know, think about someone who's got a big ruler who can kind of, you know, sit on the front and drive that break. Because if you have a bunch of climbers up the road, which won't likely be the case, you know, they're going to burn a lot of matches before that final climb. So a breakaway, and ideally, if you are a climber, you would probably want at least four minutes at the bottom Ah. again it depends on how how hard Pugachar and and Vingo go go because you know if if even if it's a reasonable climber up the road they could probably take four or five minutes out of them no problem
1: but because it's flat at the start, that makes it harder for the climbers to get in the break and stay in the break, I suppose.
3: It does, yeah. And that's where we could see a group get a lot of time tomorrow. And, you know, something that I mentioned today, again, Jumbo doesn't want Pugashar to take these time bonuses. You know, so if they can let a group go and not control and, you know, let it get time where they know the stage win's going to be gone. You know, coming up what we have coming... If those two riders come to the finish, Pogachar is going to just chip away at time bonuses. So I do think that Yumbo wants a break to go
1: just so they can guarantee he's not going to get those time bonuses at the finish line. Well, Ian, we'll see how that pans out tomorrow. And we'll be back again in the evening to discuss stage 13 of the Tour de France. We'll be on in the hunt for somewhere to eat dinner because, as you say, it's July the 14th, tomorrow Bastille Day. It's also a Friday night. I mean, that is the convergence of the three toughest conditions for finding a restaurant open in France that will take us so maybe we need to get on the internet and book something tomorrow
3: and it's the 13th stage so maybe it's our unlucky day well (laughs) we shall see tomorrow but until then upside (laughs) down thank you very much thank you Lionel
4: the cycling podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore Daniel Freib, and Lionel Burney